Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with comedian, actor, and writer Kumail Nanjiani. Friends, I'm not Pakistani. I've never attempted stand-up comedy, and my parents never tried to arrange a marriage for me. And thank God no one I love has ever gone into an eight-day coma and nearly died. So when someone makes a film about all of that, that I completely relate to, well, that's a good movie. You might know Kumail Nanjiani from his stand-up specials and his work on HBO's comedy, Silicon Valley. But he told me he never felt funny until he moved to the U.S. from Karachi, Pakistan at 18. Mainly because he didn't realize being funny was something you could actually do for a living. It just took Jerry Seinfeld and an existential crisis to get him started. Kumail overcame fear, inexperience, and racism to find himself and his career. Turns out that was the easy part. The prospect of rejecting his culture and disappointing the parents he loved was tougher. But it makes for a surprisingly universal story in The Big Sick, written with his wife Emily Gordon and produced by Judd Apatow. Kumail joins me to talk about his journey, the comedians that influenced him, and the challenges of telling a balanced story about your own life. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Kumail. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Good. You know, when I found out you were going to come on here, I was very excited because I'm a big Silicon Valley fan. Thank you. So I'm like, great, we'll talk about Silicon Valley the whole time. And then I saw The Big Sick, and I was blown away by this film. I mean, oh, I, think, <laughs> I think you've really created something that puts a face on a cultural difference that no one's been as successful doing as, as I've found in the experience of watching your film. There's, oh, thank you. uh, and, and maybe that was a hidden benefit or not even something that you really tried to do, but what I came away from the experience of watching your film was the humanity involved in the cultural differences that you faced coming to the United States and, and, and putting a face on a religion that a lot of people don't understand in this country and right. customs that people don't understand. Right. And we should tell people, it's called The Big Sick. Yes. And it stars you and Zoe Kazan, yes. Ray Romano, Holly Hunter. Yeah. And basically, without giving too much of it away, it is an incredibly autobiographical telling of your life, meeting your girlfriend who becomes your wife, as you're trying to make it as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, it's sort of the story of the first year of our relationship. Um, so Emily and I met in Chicago when I was sort of doing, you know, really small stand-up comedy shows in the backs of restaurants and those kinds of things. And it sort of follows us getting to know each other. And we didn't make this movie because we were like, we should show people a face of Islam or Muslim families that they don't see. We made this movie because we were like, we want to tell this story. We want to tell this story right. And part of telling the story right uh, means that portraying my family, who is Muslim, in a realistic way, which is, you know, they're, we're a loving family who happens to be Muslim. So that was sort of a side effect of it, but we really wanted to, to do a good job of it just because we knew that if we wanted a great movie, that part of it needed to be very believable, you know? Right. You know, the movie starts with, with just right off the bat, you say, I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, mm -hmm. and there's documentary footage of yes. Pakistan and so yeah. right there there's an honesty to the film and you know this is film is about a character named Kumail Nanjiani and you're playing yourself and so 
it, more than almost any film I've seen like this, it, it crosses the lines of documentary and narrative in, in, in its right. setup. Well, honestly, at the beginning, we, I, I wanted to be super autobiographical. For me, you know, uh, as a stand-up, my challenge was going from being observational and external to being a little more personal, a little more internal. Writing this movie, the challenge was the opposite. Uh, right from the beginning, Emily and I knew we wanted it to be a very personal film and that we'd have to do some deep digging and sort of get at all that stuff. The challenge was going to be making it entertaining. We knew that there was enough stuff there in our first year that would make it very personal. We just didn't know if we could figure out a way to make that entertaining to people who, <laughs> who hadn't lived through it, you know? Right. Well, I, gosh, I would think any time you take on something that is based on your own life, there's an extra level of self-consciousness yes. of, is this just me thinking it's interesting because it's my I life? Know. I mean, totally. People are like, who do you think you are that your life deserves a story, <laughs> deserves a movie? And I'm like, I think everybody's life deserves a movie. You know, try and, try and do it. We were just lucky enough to be... Uh, in a position where we could get it done because Judd uh, Apatow, who produced the movie, sort of wanted us to do the story, which meant that we were able to do it. I wanted to back up a little bit in case people don't know. That that's how you, you started as a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Like you said, in Chicago, and then you moved to New York. I mean, obviously, you grew up in Karachi, and you came to the States when you were how old? I was 18 or 19. Well, I read that you came across a Jerry Seinfeld stand-up special. Yeah. And that was sort of, gave you an impulse to try stand-up comedy. And, I, and it got me thinking, like, what if you would come across, like, a Carrot Top special first? Uh-huh. Like, you just happened to come across the most observational, yes. very brilliant, subversive sort of uh, comedian. You know, there are certain things you watch that just sort of get inside you and change your DNA, you know, there are certain things that um, just sort of crawl inside you and become part of who you are. And a lot of that happens when you're younger, but I think it can still happen. You know, I hope that I'm open enough that if I watch something, I allow it to really, really like alter me in some way. Um, Seinfeld definitely was one of the th one of the things that I watched that I was like, oh my god, this this changes how. I see the world, you know, and, and it changes what I thought was possible. Like, I didn't really know you could just get up on stage and talk about anything and make it funny. So that gave me a lot of confidence seeing Seinfeld do it. But also, you know, I watched a lot of Conan O'Brien. Right. Um, how soon after you got to the United States were you watching these things? Like, how did that figure into your, into your education of what? Yeah. Because I would think that a lot of that humor, Conan's humor and, and Seinfeld's humor to some extent, it's it requires like sort of growing up in a certain environment, I would think. So those jokes make sense, but maybe I'm wrong about well, yeah, that. Yeah, well, I'm proof that that's maybe not, that they're a little more universal than we think. I mean, you know, the thing with Seinfeld's whole thing is that it's very like, all the things we notice, he's calling them out and making fun of them. And you're sort of suddenly, uh, you know, he's, he's calling out the background background noise, right? There's so many things that happen that you don't think about, and his whole shtick was, well, notice them. They don't make sense. With Conan, he's a little weirder, you know? His, yeah. his comedy was very, was very subversive also, but it was very surreal, too. Like, he did the masturbating bear and stuff, right. and insane, right. insane the stuff pimp like bot. that. Yeah, Pimpot, that... 
You know, with Seinfeld, you could sort of look and be like, I know why this is funny. But with a lot of Conan stuff, it was like, I don't know why this is funny. I know it's funny, but I don't know why it's funny. And so that was really exciting, you know. And I, I still don't. I still don't know why it was funny, and I actually haven't. That made me want to not really think about comedy too much, was, was watching somebody like Conan. What do you mean, not really think about it? Not try and figure out why something's funny or not, and just sort of trust myself to be like, oh, this feels funny. I don't know why it's funny. There are certain things, you know, you, you have certain theories about what makes you laugh, what specific things make you laugh, and why they're funny, and... I certainly have a ton of those, you know, that I'm like, oh, I think whenever this happens, I think this is funny, or I think this juxtaposition is always funny. But with Conan, with Masturbating Bear and stuff, it just was like, there didn't seem to be a formula. It was just funny because it was funny. So that made me uh, sort of not question it anymore and just be like, if I think it's funny, there's hopefully something to it, and just to try and do stuff that I think is funny. Do you think that when you were really young, you had something in you that was like, oh, I'm a performer, or I have a comic perspective on the world, or, or was that developed when you got to the United States? I would say, um, I think it was developed when I got to the United States. Like, my family was shocked when, they, when I started doing stand-up, because they were like, you're so shy, you're so quiet, and I was. I was really shy, really quiet. I, co- I come from a funny family, like, my, my, my parents are very funny. But I never felt funny until I came to America. Um, and I think part of it maybe was, you know, I'm coming from a different world, so I have a little bit of like an observer, outsider perspective, so I notice the things that Seinfeld would notice or something. That, that One of the big things I realized, one of the big epiphanies I had when I came here was um, things are done so differently here. And it wasn't like, oh, the way things are done here is better than the way things are done in Pakistan, it just made me realize like, oh, different ways of doing things are possible, that there are many different ways to live. Um, So maybe it was that outsider perspective that helped me be funny here, but I didn't really feel funny in Pakistan and I I was very shy. Well, I mean, you could argue that the life you have now in the United States is the very embodiment of the American dream. (laughs) Like, you, you took just what was inside of you and you created a whole career out of a a dream, basically, which is the definition of what we call ingenuity or entrepreneurship or whatever it is here. But is that the thinking where you came from? Or or could you even imagine that kind of thing at that age? No, not at all. I mean, this is the best case scenario of my life. You know, if there are like infinite universes, I think my life in this one is the best. I really think it's, it's, I feel very, very lucky. See, in Pakistan, Maybe this is just my experience, but that thing of the, like the American dream thing you're talking about, like you be whatever you want to be, what do you want to do when you grow up? You could do anything. You could be the president. That wasn't something, that's not how I saw the world growing up. And I don't want to generalize to all of Pakistan, but certainly for me, and it wasn't that my parents wanted me to do a specific thing. It just wasn't really part of the conversation. Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? was, do you want to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer? You know, it, it's pretty, um, the, or, or like a, a business person, and that's considered like lower than all the others. And when, you, when I watched like movies, I was obsessed with movies, it felt like they were made by, you know, magical people. It didn't feel like they were made by human beings, and it felt so outside my reality. So when I was a kid, I was like, I assume I'll be a doctor, because my dad's a doctor. What was your major in college? 
Computer science and philosophy. Okay, so not a doctor. Not a doctor. Well, I sort of decided at a certain point, I was like, all right, I don't think I want to be a doctor. But that was also because I was like, I hadn't felt passionate about anything. And I knew that to be a doctor, I had to find that stuff interesting. You don't want to be a disengaged doctor. The stakes no. are so high. I'd rather meet a disengaged artist. Right. Than totally. a disengaged doctor. Right. So from the, I was like, the stakes are too high. I don't care enough about this to be a doctor. And so... Um, and then I was like, oh, I'll be, you know, I'll do computers. That's what everyone's doing right now because this was, you know, early 2000s, late 90s, when just before the first tech bubble burst. Right. You know, the thing I most related to was office space. Uh, I was a big Mike Judge fan before Silicon Valley. I, you know, Beavis and Butthead I sure. loved when I was a kid. And, and uh, Oh, so you, could, you got to see Beavis and Butthead in Pakistan. Yeah, we got MTV. Like, if you got a satellite dish, I don't think it was legal, but if you got a satellite dish, you could get MTV, and they showed Beavis and Butthead. And that was one of those things that I watched, and I was like, I don't know why this is funny, but this is really funny. It's so weird. I, 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 there's no like formula to this. This is like clearly somebody's personal expression. But I watched Beavis and Butthead and Office Space. I related to Office Space because they were like, what would you do if you had a lot of money? And, and the lead guy says, nothing. I would do, I would do absolutely nothing. And I was like, that's me. I want to <laughs> do nothing. And I realized it wasn't because I didn't want to do anything. It's because I didn't want to do anything that I knew of. It was I, nothing that felt real was anything that I was interested in or excited by. God, that is, it's kind of sad in a way. I mean, yeah. not for you because you found the thing you love. But to be a kid and think that all your options are no good. Well, I just was always, you know, it was like, all right, well, I don't think I'll ever be find happiness with my job because I don't think I'll ever find anything. And nothing is, like, exciting to me. Um, So I was like, I'll find happiness with family, and I'll find happiness with... I have movies and TV. I can watch those. It was so close. I could have put the dots together. But I imagine you wouldn't even realize that those are jobs when you watch a movie, right? No, not at all. I mean, these people were demigods, you know? It, It doesn't feel like... And then there's a moment where you realize, like, oh, just people made this stuff. And that's pretty... That's a big thing. So explain to me, being of Muslim faith and a Shiite, watching something like Beavis and Butthead, and how those two things work together, and if there's guilt involved. Yes, I mean, guilt is a primary motivator to this day. To this day? (laughs) Yes. Um, Emily, my wife, who was a practicing therapist, we talk about it a lot. She's like, if someone asks, like, hey, do you want to get dinner today? If I, saying no makes me feel guilty. I just feel guilty about everything. Like, and a big reason that I work so much is like I feel guilty if I don't work and I really have to like work to earn fun, you know. So like I love video games, but from the beginning I had to have like, all right, if I do this much work, then I can play video games for this much, then I can. So um, yeah, I, I think you know the neural pathways are formed when you're a little kid. When you know, Islam is a lot of like. It's, it, there's a math to it, right? Like if you do good, you get this much, and then if you do bad, you get this much sin, and at the and end... And doing good is denying yourself things and... It can be. I mean, that's a big, that's certainly a part of it in Islam, you know, denying sex or denying being attracted to people is certainly part of it. But it's also like praying is good, um, helping people is good, you know, sort of the things that you would think are morally good or good. 
but there's a specific like math to it. And at the end, when you die, there's like the math, and you see like which one is did you do more good or did you do more bad? If you did more good, you go to heaven. If you did more bad, you go to hell. So it's very the world is very black and white. And so I think I think those neural pathways were formed since I was a little kid, where I was like, all right, there's a structure to the world. If you do good, then you can do a little bit of bad, as long as the good is slightly more than the bad. So to me. You know, it's like the good is doing work. I've, I've sort of taken that formula and applied it to my life. Yeah, it's funny, hearing you, hearing you say that, I think of the Catholic religion, it seems like it's just set up to fail because eventually denying yourself all the things that I you think naturally so. is gonna, and, and I wonder if that was, you know, if, if that manifested itself sort of in, in the way that kids treated each other at school or you know what I mean like I, I would think that there'd be another oh level my God. to it I, I think repression of the body is can lead to anger and violence I mean you know if you look at I feel like the only emotion that men are that that the only emotion acceptable for men to exhibit is anger everything else like men can't be sad men can't be can't be happy you know all that stuff and I think so much of that just comes from the anger comes from denying uh, your urges and your body. Um, and Islam is definitely very like there's the, there's the soul or mind and then there's the body and almost everything the body wants is bad and all, everything that the, the mind wants generally is good. So, And I think a lot of religions are like that. Denial of the body is a big part of religions. And I feel like, I feel like for me, it's been something that I'm actively aware of and trying to work on. But yeah, uh, you know, sort of not wanting to talk about sex and stuff or demonizing it is pretty unhealthy. Yeah, I think so. So when you got here, because uh, you came for school, right? I read, that, yeah. I read that your parents sent you here. Like, There was sort of an element of them wanting you to be safe, and they thought you'd be safer in the United States. Definitely. Karachi's always been... It's always been cycles of violence. You know, there'll be like, it'll be okay, then there'll be violence, it'll be okay, then there'll be violence. I remember when we were kids, there would be like weeks where we wouldn't go to school. Remember being excited, there would be like... Like a snow day. Yeah, like a snow day. But, but like what a, was the threat when you were like go to school? Like a bomb day. Like there would be like some bomb explosion somewhere. Or like, you know, Pakistan, Karachi for from the outside looks very homogenous. You know, everyone seems racially similar to predominantly Muslim. But Karachi is a city that grew very quickly. So there were a lot of um, immigrants and refugees from other parts of Pakistan or other parts of India that moved there. So Karachi sort of been a hotbed of uh, conflict for a while. So yeah, there would be like a week where like bad stuff is happening and you would just kind of stay at home. And it was weird. Like, I mean, we were kids. So didn't have a real sense of it, but, you know, my dad would come home and be like, there was an explosion here, and we were like, oh, that sucks. So we probably shouldn't go to school, right? Probably stay home. Like, I remember feeling, like, like kind of happy about it. It's like a snow day. What a weird thing for a parent, too. Like, is my kid trying to manipulate me, or is there really a chance that a bomb could go off at the school? I mean, that was, uh, yeah, I think that was part of it, you know, when we would use, like, our parents' guilt, like, hey, there was something that happened over there. It's kind of far, but, I mean, who knows? I don't, would, if something happened, would you be able to live with yourself if something happened to us? Probably not, right? <laughs> 
And they were like, oh, God. So, yeah, we, we stayed at home. And finally, they said, let's just send them to America. Yeah. We'll be done with this. Yeah, well, that was, that was the plan from the beginning because, um, you know, it is, it's, Pakistan is a very, very corrupt, it's very corrupt country. And, and, and corrupt in a way, obviously, you know, people are like, America's corrupt, which it is. There's lobbying and all that. But over there, it affects your life. Like you would, they call it like tea and water. Like the cop can stop you. A cop can stop you and be like, you want to go to jail or do you want to give me some tea and water? So then you, you give them some money or if you like, if you're, if you need a new driver's license, you have to bribe somebody. You know, I always, I make this joke that like Pakistan is never on the top 10 list of most corrupt countries because we're corrupt enough to like not be on that list. <laughs> like those are the countries that weren't able to get off the list. We're so good that we, we, we figured out how to get off that list. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, all, it's very corrupt and we were very aware of the conflicts and the violence and it's just, you know, yeah, it was always a plan to get out. But I don't want to give the sense that growing up in Karachi was like this really scary thing where we were always huddled under, you know, in doorways or in bomb shelters or anything. It was not like that. I had a great time. We just knew like the threat of violence was just sort of part of our lives. And I find the difference here is people assume safety unless there is danger. And over there, people assume danger unless there is safety. And that's just how you live your life. You know, like I only had two cousins that were ever kidnapped, really. <laughs> no, there was, only, there was only one. And um, Was there really? Well, I had a friend who got kidnapped um, and then paid ransom and get him back. And then I had a distant cousin who got kidnapped, who then I think turned out he faked his own kidnapping. So even he was corrupt. So even he was corrupt. <laughs> and he was a kid. He was like 15. Yeah. Um, so, so I want to just make sure that it... I had a great childhood. I, I really had a great time. Um, when I came here, it was the biggest, single biggest thing is, you know, talking to girls. Like, I didn't really, I was very shy and I couldn't, and I don't mean like, I don't mean like flirting with girls. I mean, just like talking to women. <laughs> and so when I came here, that was the big thing was like, just talking to people was very scary. Um, I remember I would, I really, my first two weeks here, I really, really hated it. And I, I had a roommate because I was, lived in the dorm and I was in the bottom bunk. And like I would see the crisscross like metal on the bed above me and I was like, I'm in prison. I would always wake up and that's the first thing I would see and be like, I'm in prison, I want to get out of here. Like I really hated my first couple weeks here. And what do you think it was that changed it? I think I became a person. I feel, I truly feel like before coming here, and it wasn't because anything about Pakistan, it's just, you know, you're living with your parents and stuff, and I was very shy. I really feel like I wasn't really a person, um, which seems harsh, but that is how I see it. I just felt like, I never felt like anything when I was there. This is, sounds sad, but no, like if someone was like, describe your personality, I'd be like, I don't have any adjectives, I don't know. But when I came here and then, I remember f when I first started feeling funny, I remember being like, oh, I'm funny. This is part of, this is part of who I am. And I remember that being one of the first things, being like, oh, I am, I am funny. And that, that was like a, that gave me a lot of confidence and uh, really made me feel like a person. 
So when did you start hatching the plan that like maybe you could try stand up and I mean, what was your strategy or, or level of? Not very much forward thinking at all. Um, you know, so I became a fan of stand up and I wasn't really, I wasn't really gonna, I wasn't really thinking about doing it or anything. Um, it was my, my senior year of college and I was just like, all right, in one year, I go into the real world. I have no idea what I wanna do. What am I gonna do? And I remember I took that summer just sort of grasping at straws and gen, like actively thinking, like, what am I going to do with my life? And ultimately, what I landed on was like, I was like, I have to try stand up. That's all I know. And I have no way of explaining it except like I felt like I didn't have a choice. I was like, I have to do this. Like, it almost hurt to not do it. Like watching, I'd become so obsessed with stand-up comedy specifically. I'd watched so many sets and I'd listened to so many albums and I loved it so much that I was just like, I have to. So that's how I made it graspable, you know. I was like, I just have to try it once. So that summer I wrote a bunch of jokes and I wrote a bunch of stand-up. And then when school started a month in, I did like a a show with like... At school. At school in this coffee shop the small coffee shop, um, I, I did this uh, show with a couple of my other friends. We all did stand-up, you know, and it was all the stuff that I'd written that summer, and I was super, super nervous. And, you know, I'm thinking about it now. I, I had just thought, like, I have to get up and do this. Like, if you see in the movie, my character is a guy who doesn't really think about long-term stuff. He's just sort of... That's his defense He's mechanism. He's sort of one little lie ahead of... Yes, of like doom. Yes. Each time. And that's kind of... But, but the And that's, you know, in the movie and in my life, it ultimately was a negative thing that I needed to confront. But there's also a, a positive aspect to it, which is that you can lie to yourself and not think about the negative... Con- of the, the, the bad things that could happen. So when I was going up to do stand-up, I was very nervous, but I wasn't like, if it goes bad, then this happens, because my defense mechanism is to not think about the consequences. <laughs> so, so that actually helped me with stand-up. I hadn't thought what would happen if I don't do well. And I remember that night I was performing and I was so nervous, and my friends and I went to like this Chinese buffet in that town, which was like a really greasy like Chinese... And I remember sitting there and they were all like having a good time and I was like, I envy them so much. They're having a good time and I'm like so nervous. I'm, I, I, I can't move. Um, I remember that very specifically. But then I went up on stage and it went, a part of it, you know, the audience was all my friends or, or college kids who knew me and wanted to support me. It went so well. It went like... I got on stage, I did like 30 or 35 minutes, which is really? so much time. Yeah, That's we like had a no, special. That's I like know. A, we had no idea. We, we didn't know. We were like, oh, yeah, this is how long sets are. Do a 35-minute set the first time you're ever on stage. But it went so well. Do you remember your opening joke? I think my opening joke was I want to have... Uh, a unit of measurement named after myself because all the cool scientists have them, you know, like Jules, Newton, Mr. Kilometer. That was one of the jokes. Um, <laughs> but I want something cool, you know, like turn the torpedoes up to five Nanjianis. It's like five Nanjianis, that's way too much power. Most people can't handle one Nanjiani. I remember that. <laughs> that was the opening joke that I wrote. Um, 
And I don't, you know, I actually tried to find that th that file. Like, I couldn't find it. Um, but, yeah, I had, they weren't good jokes. They, they were not good. You say that, but I feel like your personality is already in that first joke. Well, I think that might have been the best one out of all of them. That's why I remember it. <laughs> See, my defense mechanism tells me not to remember the bad stuff. Well, in the film, you you... There's a lot of stand-up in the film. Yes. And in it, you meet your wife, played by Zoe Kazan, when she heckles you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm curious throughout this film what, what was real and, and what was made up for the film. And I wondered if that was a moment that, was, that really happened. Or if what that do you was, think? Well, I don't... I mean, it's such a meet-cute in, this, in the yeah. traditional romantic comedy that I would call BS on it. No, it's real. It is. Yeah. That, that is totally real. Exactly what, and I said the same thing to her. I was on stage, I was like, I said something about Pakistan, she woohooed, and I was, I looked at this really cute girl, and I was like, you're not from Pakistan, I would have noticed you. And I did write her name in Urdu, like that you was, did. that was like, well, that was kind of like my. Right, and we should say for, in the, in the movie, that's your sort of bad move with the ladies, is to, yeah. to take their name and write it in Urdu and give yeah. it to them, and she, and she, it calls you on that, too. In the movie, in real life, it worked. <laughs> She's very... And, and, you know, she was like... When we started dating in a couple months in, she was, like, so charmed by that. And she would, like, tell her friends, like, it was so sweet and romantic. And I had to be like, hey, honey, it breaks my heart to tell you this. But just so you know, you were not the first girl <laughs> that I tried that with. So so that that is... Um, that's totally true. I mean, our story is pretty crazy like it it kind of lends itself to a movie because it is you know it's it's very specific but it's very it's very rom-commy in some ways well in the film the woman who plays your mom says i just want two things for you yeah that you're a good muslim and you marry a pakistani woman yeah and in the film of course you disappoint her yeah. On both counts. Right. And, and that got me thinking also about the guilt that kind of fuels the whole first half of this film. Is, yeah. is that you're, you're in this position where, I mean, I mean really, it is, it is crazy. You're, you're either going to lose your family or lose your girlfriend. Yeah. And your strategy in the film is to not deal with it. You're right. Just not think about it. And that, can, you know, I mean, that is how it was. That's what I was saying was like just denial of consequences and that is how I dealt with it like when we would talk with Judd about the movie he's like so what was going on in your head like what was going to happen when you were seeing Emily and your, par not, and your parents wanted you to marry someone like what was the plan and I was like there was no plan I just did not think about it um, so and it kind of didn't make sense to people for a little while I had to be like I seriously just didn't think about it and so that's what's that's what's in the movie is just like a complete denial of consequences. Just sort of like just just trying to put it out of my mind and just right. living today. So it begs the question of, of, you know, what your parents' relationship is to the material in the film and, and, and your success in general, I guess. Yeah. You know, part of us... Connecting as adults my, with my parents has, you know, the challenge has been um, we see the world a little differently. And 
only now are they really starting to enjoy what I do. I don't mean that they didn't think I was funny or whatever, but I think up until about a year ago, they were kind of just terrified for me. They were like, he chose this life, it's very difficult. And then in the last year, they've really started getting a kick out of it. Like, they came and visited me on set when we were making this movie. And that they was did. the first time they've ever visited me. Like, that was the first time they've ever come to set. And they met the actors that played them. Yeah, well, my dad, you know, the guy who plays my dad in the movie is Anupam Kher, who's like a Bollywood legend. Like, oh, okay. He, he's, this was his 500th film. He's like Robert De Niro over there. Like, literally, every single person in India knows him. Like, there's a billion people in India, and they all know him. Like, every single person. He's a legend. When, when I asked my dad who he wanted to play him in the movie, he said Anupam Kher. He did. It's so crazy that we got him. It's, it's like the biggest deal. So they came because they wanted to meet, because they wouldn't believe me, and I'd be like, here, here's a voicemail. They he wouldn't believe me. you. They wouldn't believe me, and I was like, here's a voicemail. Look, that's him. And he'd be like, hi, I'm Anupam. Um, and so, so they came to meet him, and my dad got a picture with him. And they look alike, my dad and Anupam. And my dad called me a week later. He's like, I put that picture on Facebook. I'm up to 92 likes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that night, they both texted me. Because to them, it felt, I think they thought that we were just sort of playing around and goofing around. When they came to set, they saw that there's, you know, there's cameras and there are a lot of people. And so they really, really... They loved it, and then they texted me, both of them texted me afterwards individually that night, like, we're so proud of you, what you've done, it's so cool. And that's the first time that they've ever actually said something like that. So that was during the shooting of this movie. And, and um, I think making this movie has sort of brought us closer together. Um, and it's also put me back in touch with a lot of my family that I hadn't talked to in a while. Did you feel a responsibility in a different way for all the people in your life that, were, that are still alive and going to watch this that you yeah. have to depict? Like, did you think about that? I mean, you know, the characterizations of my parents are pretty close to how my parents actually are. And we wanted to do that because I knew my parents are lovely, wonderful, funny, interesting, goofy people who also have a serious side. So for me, it was, the challenge was, if, if, I can, if, if we can do this movie and show my parents how they are in real life, then we're, doing the, we're not doing them a disservice. Then we're doing the right thing. Like, Rather than even trying to protect them or to paint yeah, them as something else. Yeah, like Emily's parents are very different in real life than they are in the movie. Those characters are fairly different. But my parents, the characters are, are, are pretty similar. Um, and I thought, like, you know, I love these people. Um, I see their complications. I see, I think I have some access to their struggles. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand that more. My, like, my mom was 17 when she had me. She was a child when she had me. And I cannot imagine someone at 17 having to raise a person. So you try your best. You do some things right. You Some things you don't do right. And my mom says, you know, like, I, I didn't even finish high school. So for you, you going through college was very important to me because I wanted to ha you to have the, the opportunities that I didn't have. And we, we knew that the movie would only be successful if there are no bad guys. The movie has to be, 
you have to see everybody's perspective. There has to be conflict because people's perspectives are different, but that you have to understand what their perspectives are. So there's that one scene in the movie where I sort of tell my parents everything. And that scene were, was originally written that I have this thing out where I'm like, I can't marry someone you find for me. I, I'm in love with someone else. And that's supposed to be like this big stand that he takes. But then my dad, says something to me where he says, the American dream doesn't mean you just do whatever you want to do and not give a shit about other people. He doesn't say shit. Right. Um, I think he says, you're being totally selfish. You're not yeah. thinking about us. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know. Yeah. He's like, you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about us. You're not thinking about Khadija, the, the girl that they're trying to set me up with. And you're not thinking about Emily. You're sort of not thinking about anybody but yourself. And so... And that was a pretty late addition in this, into the script, but I think it really helps because then you see they get to say their piece too, you know, and we, we tried to make it. If you're going to have a Muslim family in a movie that wants the main guy in the movie to have an arranged marriage, it's very easy for that family to be the underdog, to sort of be wrong. We didn't want to show that. We wanted, it, we, we wanted everyone to be right in their own way. Was there a point in your real life when that very thing happened where you, where you realized all your mom wanted for you was to be a good Muslim who married a Pakistani girl and you felt like you disappointed her? Yes. I mean, I've, I've known that since I was a little kid. Like, since I was a little kid, my mom said, you know, you, you have to be a good Muslim and you have to marry someone I find for you. And here's jewelry that I bought for her. So, like, since I was a kid, that was the narrative. And I... When I started, you know, in college, when I was becoming a person, I remember being like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Because I don't think I can marry someone they find for me, but I can't disappoint my mom. Because my mom would say kind of, you know, she would say like, oh, this is so sad. But, and I think she's changed her mind since she's moved here too. But she was kind of like, you know, I'm sort of done. Like I've lived my life. All I have to look forward to is to find you a wife. That's all I have left. That's what you would say. And that in, in traditional Muslim families, that becomes a big part of the mom's role, yes. right? I yes. mean, because in the film, it's depicted, this is completely the mom's deal. Yeah, And totally. she sets it all up. And We wanted to show that perspective, the, the mom's perspective. We wanted to show, you know, that arranged marriage does work for a lot of people. It can sort of, for, for people here, where, you know, the, the romantic marriage is such a, such a big part of the narrative of one's life, finding the one, all that. Their marriage is more of a contract between families, but it really works. My parents have a wonderful relationship, and they're truly, truly, truly in love with each other, and they were in an arranged marriage. We do say, you know, there's a, there's a scene in the movie where I say... There's a thing called love marriage, and that's a real thing. Like someone met someone, fell in love, and got married, and love marriage is a bad term. It's like a pejorative. Like people will be like, oh, he had a love marriage. And is a love marriage sometimes code for someone got pregnant? I'm sure it is, but I, you know, that was so not talked about, like a shotgun wedding. That was so not talked about that I have, I have no idea if that's true or not, although I'm sure it is, but nobody ever talked about that. Wow. I mean, there's a big, you know, our culture is very... We were never taught, we were never taught about 
how babies happen. Like nobody ever told us, not in school, not at home. No one has to talk. No one has to talk. I never had to talk. Thank God, I don't want to talk. Well, let me explain this to you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Tell you how it works. Because there's some stuff going on I'm not quite getting. I have a couple questions. <laughs> That's why you don't have children yet. You just don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> we're kissing a lot. I don't know why this isn't happening. We're sharing, we're sharing Coke from the same glass. I don't know why it's not happening. Are you using the same toilet? Sometimes. All right, so there's, there's a little chance. I gotta, I gotta educate you on how this all works. But did you go through a period where you were estranged from your parents after those decisions you made? There was a little time where we weren't talking as much, but we were never estranged. Here's the thing. You know, Emily and I just got married, and we, ma- we went to a courthouse and we got married. And once my parents understood that this wasn't going to be something that they could talk me out of, they, like, did their best to embrace her. Like, we went to New... So when they met Emily... We went to New Jersey to visit them. Emily, we were already married. That's how they met. Wait, but, you were married before, before your parents met her? Yeah. So, so it was extreme. Like, you had it to make pretty, this decision yes. and do it. And Yes. So, so we had to, soon, right after my parents found out, we sort of decided, like, Emily and I decided, like, let's just get married. That's kind of what we have to do. And then they'll just have to sort of accept her. And they did. And I didn't give them enough credit. They totally did. We, we went over there and my mom had the jewelry that she was going to give, you know, to the woman she found for me. She gave to Emily. And they just, like, did their best to, like, accept her. And it helps that Emily's, like, the most lovable person in the world. But, um, yeah, we, we, when, I'm, when I took Emily to meet my parents, we were already married. And so they did not know about the sickness that's depicted in the movie and is responsible for the title of the movie, they didn't know anything about the big sick. I mean, do you think your level of self-awareness went up through the experience of doing this movie? It helps that it had been a few years ago and, the, and that the, a lot of the problems that my character is going through in the movie are to some, to varying degrees a little bit dealt with, you know, like the issue with my parents was dealt with. I, I, you know, I wasn't lying to the people I love anymore, so that was helpful. But it did sort of force me to confront, like I said, you know, when Jed was like, what was the plan? And that was when I was like, there was no plan. And I didn't even understand that there was no plan because there was no plan. So that part was interesting to go through and try and be like, what was I going to do? Oh, nothing. I just wasn't I just wasn't thinking about it. So it wasn't, it wasn't, um, just having like a few years distance really helped. But you know, like I I found recently, I found some emails that my mom had sent me back then when I was with Emily, before Emily got sick. My mom was sending me pictures of girls, you know. Is that true that that part of the arranged marriage is that that Pakistani families make the, these almost headshot-type-looking pictures of their daughters? Well, you get pictures, but a lot of times, and this was in the script, and we thought it was just too much, where a lot of times they're pictures that are sort of like snuck at weddings. So it'd be like a girl looking over here, and someone would like snap her picture and right. stuff like that. But they do, like, you know, you get the emails, and you would, it would say, like, what they're, how educated they were and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I had a cousin who 
was staying with us when she was of marrying age. So we would have those exact kinds of things that we weren't allowed at those dinners, but like families would come in with like eligible guys. And, you know, nobody says it's all unsaid, but everybody knows why that's happening. So that oh was, but, you know, because my parents lived in a different state and we're in America and it's, it's not that many eligible people around. I would get emails and I, I saw these emails and I like felt so, I felt like I was such a fucking dick because I was totally <laughs> like playing along, you know. I, I had no intention of following through, but I was certainly like giving my mom enough positive signals. For You're her giving her lip service just to, yeah. just to not deal with it. I was just it. lying, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I think that's a very common thing to be discovering one life you're living with your friends and then trying to make the picture of what you think your parents want to see. Yeah, well, the difference is here, there's like the narrative of rebelling against your parents. That's like a real thing and that's sort of accepted. We don't have that. We don't have like rebellion against your parents. So there's no like affirming your own individuality by rejecting your parents to some extent or rebelling against them. That doesn't exist in Pakistan. Nobody does that. You're not supposed to do that. God, I mean, that's what really got me about the film is how two cultures, you know, just the very act of falling in love with somebody. I mean, there's there's certainly Romeo and Juliet elements to it. And I think what got to me more than anything was how alike, even those circumstances are totally different. How alike we are when we're young, when we're in our 20s. Yeah. We're not sure enough of ourselves to be able to do the right thing. Right. And that's no different, I guess, whether you grow up in Karachi or oh, Los yeah. Angeles. I mean, obviously, this is stuff that's in the conversation a lot right now. But I really think we, I mean, we have so much more in common than we don't, you know I mean? And I, th- and I, and I think all the immigration stuff and different cultures bumping up against each other, that's such a modern problem that everybody's thinking about and trying to deal with and I feel like this sounds so cliche but everyone's focused on the differences where the similarities there are way more similarities we all you know everyone wants to be happy and have a job and be in love and you know all that stuff is very universal right but there's a scene in the film there's a racism scene in the film with a heckler yes I mean I would guess that that you were drawing from real life experiences of racism yeah. from that. I mean, you know, the, the, the ra- racist heckler in the movie is not a complete fabrication. It's all based on stuff that happened to me. I mean, you know, the guy says in the movie, he says, go back to ISIS, but what I heard was go back to Taliban because, you know, that was just the reference has been updated. But yeah, um, I, I probably have had racist heckles maybe seven or eight times oh, really? over my career. Not in the last five years, but before that. Yeah. Um, which isn't that much, but it's still quite a bit. Like, you know... Um, well, I would say once sucks. Once sucks. But, you know, that's the thing. is like by the third time it happens, you're like, all right, I got to write some comebacks for this because this is going to happen. Um, and then I did write comebacks, and those comebacks are in the movie. So, So that... Obviously, the, the scene in the movie escalates to a new degree. Sure. But all, all that stuff is real. All that stuff has happened. And I actually read an article about how that stuff is happening more to comedians now. I read this article written by this Asian-American comedian who like, was like, 
quit comedy because suddenly people were felt more emboldened to say racist stuff to him while he was on stage. Isn't that interesting? Oh my God! It's it just means that that stuff was always there, and people felt like people just didn't feel confident that then, and now they feel supported. Right. You know, that's what's happened is that there were certain things that people believed that they, that they felt like wasn't part of a political public conversation. And now suddenly we're in a situation where it seems like every point of view is just as valid, which is not true. If you think black and white people shouldn't marry, you shouldn't you shouldn't. You shouldn't feel confident saying that in public. And right. now people feel confident. I read this thing. This woman was like starting a thing of like, let's make more white babies. And, you know, there's too many different colored babies. There should be more white babies. And she like started a whole campaign for it on Facebook and Twitter. And it's like, you shouldn't feel like you should be able to say that. This should be embarrassing. You should be embarrassed. You shouldn't be like, there's just too many people who like agree with her and they've always agreed with her but now it's somehow you know every every point of view it's like it's like a democracy taken to its extreme which is like the truth has now been democratized democratized like if enough people believe it then you know it right. becomes let's a fact. let's vote on that fact yeah you can't vote on facts but now it seems like you can yeah 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 i think that i mean gosh i have so many questions about this film and i, I know we're running out of time but and we haven't even talked about Silicon Valley, which is so funny, because to me, that show is, I mean, it's one of my favorite shows in television. And I guess it brought up a question for me about the step up in the size of the role, the scope of the role, the drama of the role in The Big Sick that you had versus what you've ever done before. Yeah. And I wondered if that was something that, you know, the, the idea of stepping into a leading man role and, and dealing with some scenes that are really emotional and tough yeah. and dark and require real structure and balance honestly what gave me the most confidence was judd being like you should be the lead of this movie and i was like thank you was there ever a question of that no no you were always going to be the lead i was always going to be the lead but the fact that judd thought i could do it and judd has you know worked with so many amazing people the fact that judd felt so confident and unworried about that really really helped me the other thing that helped me was obviously that I'd lived through this, so I knew how it felt to go through all that. And I'd done enough, I'd only done really comedic acting up until this, but I'd done enough of it that I knew I could do the other stuff. I knew it would take work. And I, I mean, I, you know, I put in a lot of work. I, I worked on just the acting in the movie for about a year, like with rehearsals, with my acting teacher and going through scenes and all that stuff because I really wanted to get it right. But I felt, I don't, again, you know, it's that thing of like the possibility of failure wasn't something I thought thought about. Um, Obviously, I was nervous going into it, but I knew... I knew that I knew I could do it, but I just had to be able to do it because the trick is, the big trick with, with the, the challenge with acting, especially in the low-budget movie, is not that you can do it, but that you have to be able to do it on command within a very specific time window, right? Right. And in a movie like this, which really is a character piece where it's like sort of my character's journey uh, arc in the movie is like a very specific thing, and you're shooting the scenes out of order. Sure. So that stuff is tricky 
because it's not just going to the emotional place you need to go to, but you also have to be a little um, mathematically precise about it. And I learned that very specific thing from doing Silicon Valley, a very specific episode of Silicon Valley. There's an episode, do you remember, when um, we have the live cam and the guy uh, who's... Um, who goes there to get the camera from the bird that's giving the eggs, the guy gets stuck there. Yes. And then, and then slowly, like, we get more and more followers. So those are basically, we did, all of us, there were, like, five scenes in a row, and each right, time block we come shot back, all of them, right? Yeah, right. So there's five scenes, and in each scene, things are, like, a little crazier each time. So I, I remember I hadn't taken any acting classes at, by that point, and I remember being like, oh, this is something I need to figure out, because I know, I know I can get like, intense, and I know I can be like, nervous, but to be able to like, ramp up the intensity like, by, by degrees, you know, five different steps so that it's almost percentage, like 20% more, then another 20%, then another 20%. I knew that that was something I had to figure out. While I was shooting that scene, I was like, oh, this is quite challenging for me. And so doing the movie, that was a big thing that I really focused on, was trying to find different levels. Because you can't sort of be at 100 the entire time. Right. But I started taking acting classes right after we finished that season. I was like, okay, I felt so far fairly confident and fairly comfortable doing everything, but I realized like, oh, there's like a whole other side of this that I just don't have the tools. I just don't know how to do it. But after that, I sort of had was like, all right, I, I got to... You know, I was just scared of taking acting classes for a long time. How come? I was scared of knowing how much I didn't know, of finding out exactly what I didn't know. Because, again, it was like this door that I didn't want to open because I was like, once I open the door, I have to confront all my weaknesses. And so for years, I was just, like, doing the scenes and doing them. And then after that, I was like, all right, I got to walk in the door. So you open the door and you walk in and you're like, okay, these are all the things I can't do. These are my weaknesses. Let's directly tackle them. And that's what, um, that was a big part of uh, preparation for the movie. God, you know, it's, it is, I hope, I hope people see this film because it's one of those films where you get taken on a ride and you have no idea where you're going or you think it's going one direction, it goes another. And it's a very specific, unrepeatable, rare experience that happens to you that somehow becomes completely relatable to the audience. Oh, I'm glad because, I mean, that's what we hoped, you know, is that if we make it really, really specific, we make it feel real, then the audience will connect. And it's interesting. So we showed it at Sundance and nobody really knew anything about the movie. A lot of people went in because it was Judd. They were like, oh, there's going to be like a big comedy and then they were kind of blindsided by the emotion of it. So that was great. We got a real reaction from that crowd. There were no expectations. But it was interesting the different ways that people related to it. You know, some people related to it with they were like, hey, I, I was dating a girl from Bangladesh and we had the same issues. And some people were like, when my father was in the hospital, I feel that. Or just the feeling of like disappointing your parents. So, and we really put in a lot of little details, you know, that um, are just exactly from our life that sort of feel arbitrary to other people, but they feel real to us, and that's why they're in there. So we really put in a lot of very specific details from our lives, little snippets of things people said, just to make it 
just to just to make it feel all real, you know. And I got the idea for putting in those arbitrary details, but putting them in from our lives. Like we're friends with uh, James Gunn, the guy who directs the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And Rocket Raccoon's teeth are modeled after his dog's teeth. And I was like, that's so great. That's such a great way to take something. Because you could have just artists do those teeth and nobody would know. Only you know. But then you feel connected to this thing you made. And so from that, we were like, we should put in parts of our lives, parts of little things that seem unimportant. Just like populate the movie with that little, little textural stuff, you know. I think you have to put in little parts of your life that might not be in the script, uh, that might not seem like they're important parts of the story, but that was the stuff that really helped us connect to the movie. Well, I think that stuff does transfer. And I think when you put so much of yourself and so much care into being specific and being truthful to the story, it can't help but connect with an audience. But even stuff like, you know, when we're having, when we're eating food, uh, there's a bunch of eating food scenes with my family. Even the menu items, I was like, oh no, this is not something that any, that my mom would make at home. So even those things were like, oh yeah, my mom would have this, my mom would have this. You know, that stuff, because making a movie can feel so artificial. There's cameras everywhere, there's lights, that you have to try and make it feel real just for yourself. Uh, using whatever tools you can, you know. Well, listen, you did a brilliant job. And, and, oh, thank uh, you. I'm glad you I really it. enjoyed it. I think it's just, it's a story that's told in an original way that I haven't seen before, and it surprised me, but it also made me feel like uh, I knew you. And, and that's what you want out of a movie. So it's just a brilliant job, and thanks for sharing your story with me. Oh, thank you for having me. This I appreciate great. it. Hey folks, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for always listening to Off Camera. If you haven't been to the offcamera.com website, it's worth a little bit of your time, and I'll tell you why. You can sign up for our monthly subscription, and for under $5 a month, you can watch all the off-camera you want. It's a great way to support the show, and also catch up on any and every episode in glorious black and white. So please, check that out today. And if you want to reach out to me, I'm Sam at offcamera.com. You can also find us on social media. We are at Off Camera Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. I want to thank everyone that helps us out with the show. Our producer, Crawford Chippy, Our editor, Nathan Shields. Our graphic designer and camera person, Michaela Galvin. Our studio manager, Sasha Snow. Our transcriptionist, Cara Johnson. And our little buddy, Matt Davidson. We couldn't do the show without every one of those people, so a big thank you goes to them. And make sure to join me next time, off camera.